We're just starting to deal with racism. We're just beginning to address issues of gender. We're just beginning to address a whole range of issues. So I can say that I'm excited because this seems like a really powerful beginning. That's Angela Davis, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Angela Davis on beginnings, movements of possibility. In times of crisis, one can simultaneously see danger and opportunity. Today, there is nostalgia for an imagined past and a desire to recreate it. It's a seductive tale. Things were better then. The country was unchallenged in the world. Jobs were plentiful. Minorities, women, gays, and immigrants knew their place. There was order in the land. But over many decades, as a result of struggle and movements, society evolved and changed. We are at a perilous moment. Do we want to go back or continue to move forward, building on hard-fought gains? During another perilous time, Martin Luther King Jr. declared, we've got to massively confront the power structure. We are at a crossroads, the beginning of a brighter or darker future. The choice is ours. Our guest today is Angela Davis, one of the iconic figures of this era. Acquitted on conspiracy charges in 1970 after one of the most famous trials in U.S. history, she went on to become an internationally renowned writer, scholar, and lecturer. She's the author of many books, including Women, Race, and Class, Blues Legacies, and Black Feminism, and Freedom is a Constant Struggle. She spoke in Santa Fe at a Lannan Foundation event. And now, Angela Davis. But I just recently returned from a visit to Australia. And I want to talk about uh, my experiences in Australia for a moment. Um, in Australia, progressive activists have learned how to open every meeting, every conference or gathering such as this with what indigenous people call a welcome to country. A representative of the people who are uh, the traditional owners of the colonized land on which the the gathering takes place, reminds those in attendance of the history and culture associated with that geographical site. Speakers, performers, participants in conferences are also expected to pay tribute to the traditional owners. Uh, indigenous people in Australia constitute the oldest living culture on the planet. They were there when the land was declared terra nullius by European colonizers. They were there tens of thousands of years before the Australian Constitution was written. And their lives, their collaborative practices uh, with other beings on this earth 
made it possible to engage in an organic interrelationship with this planet that has since been so ravaged by settler colonialism, racism, and capitalist exploitation. I can tell you uh, how amazing it is to hear um, Aboriginal people uh, uh, who fish for a living talk about the tradition of the dolphins assisting them to catch the fish. Uh, um, I pay tribute to Aboriginal people, to indigenous people here in the US all over um, because indigenous peoples express a much more holistic idea of what it means to be a citizen of this planet. Much more holistic than those who assume that citizenship is simply a function of documents or constitutional decrees. And I especially want to acknowledge the ongoing protests led by the Standing Rock Sioux. who are challenging the creation of the Dakota Access oil pipeline that will not only add to the further pollution of the planet by fossil fuel, but that will likely contaminate the water supply on the land in the event of uh, leakages. And there are always leakages in these pipelines. Uh, moreover, the pipeline pollutes sacred sites on the land of the Standing Rock Sioux. Over the recent period, I have been thinking about the relevance of the stances assumed by indigenous people all over the planet who demand sovereignty for their people, whether it is economic, social, political, or cultural sovereignty. They ask for sovereignty as opposed to respecting the call for assimilation, which is the way most of us have learned how to gauge progress. I want to turn for a moment for some inspiration uh, before we continue along this line to um, Frederick Douglass. Uh, and I was thinking the other day, you know, back in the 70s, I used to um, use this passage all the time uh, because it seemed to capture what we needed at that time. And here we are four and a half decades later and I think that uh, uh, Frederick Douglass's insights on the meaning of justice and the meaning of freedom can be helpful. This passage comes from a speech he gave in 1857. It was the West India Emancipation Speech. And he said, the whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions made to her august claims have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, 
all-absorbing and for the time being putting all other tumults to silence. It must do this or it does nothing. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who favor, those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Frederick Douglass, 1857. And so I was talking about Australia. There is a campaign in Australia designed to um, create constitutional recognition of Aboriginal people. But many Aboriginal people and organizations are arguing that rather than recognition, they would prefer treaties. Treaties that will not destroy their collective agency by reducing them to individual subjects, abstract, rights-bearing subjects as defined by the Constitution. So what is the meaning of citizenship? What does it mean to be accorded formal rights when the conditions of life render these rights relatively meaningless? These are questions that may be asked with respect to the inclusion of black people in the US Constitution, which continues to be seen as the source of justice in this country. <laughs> and so where are black people in the Constitution? Okay. Well, first of all, in Article 1, Section 2 of the 1787 Constitution, um, uh, black people make their way into the Constitution uh, as in relation to um, the um, congressional apportionment, the counting of the population with respect to congressional representation. And everybody knows that, right? Three-fifths of the enslaved population was counted uh, uh, for the southern states. And, you know, thus, uh, people have been saying ever since that a black person was considered to be three-fifths of a person. Then, of course, there is the 13th Amendment. Uh, uh, and that bears revisiting. Uh, some of you may have seen um, Ava DuVernay's recent film, 13th. So let's rehearse the 13th Amendment. This is the amendment that, that putatively abolished slavery. Uh, it's very short. It doesn't even tell us what slavery is or was. But in any event, 
Section one, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And it's interesting that the exception takes up 14 out of the 32 words. So almost half of this very short amendment that allegedly abolishes an institution that had been in place for hundreds of years and had affected every aspect of the social, political, cultural life of the United States of America, and it's supposed to be abolished in a few words. Well, you might say the amendment um, is actually longer. There's another section, but this section two simply says Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. And of course, the film by Ava DuVernay, 13th, uh, explores what occurred within the loophole of that exception, which constitutes almost the same length as the actual provision that abolishes slavery. Now let's move on to the 14th Amendment. Uh, studying the Constitution a little bit this evening. Uh, uh, because we so take it for granted, we so assume that this is the, the source of our notions of justice and freedom. Uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 1, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So these are the relevant sections of the US Constitution uh, that are su supposed to be responsible for, for black citizenship. Last year, of course, we celebrated the sesquicentennial anniversary of the 13th Amendment. Uh, and uh, in a couple of years, we will uh, observe the sesquicentennial um, celebration of the 14th Amendment. Uh, but I want to suggest uh, that uh, the inclusion of black people in the Constitution did not necessarily result in freedom. As a matter of fact, one can argue that due process uh, becomes the strategy for asserting black citizenship through what you might call the legal finding of culpability. If we look now at the fact that uh, uh, the US uh, has more people behind bars uh, than any other country in the world, uh, and that is largely due, uh, largely driven by racism given the fact that uh, you know, black men and 
black women in women's prisons constitute a highly disproportionate uh, number of people behind bars. Uh, those people weren't put in prison literally because they were black. Some of them had trials, although the vast majority didn't. But they experienced due process. So it was through this notion of due process that they were justly found guilty. And in a sense, you can say black people become citizens in order to legitimize their place within the criminal justice system their disproportionate presence in the prison system. The purpose of justice then becomes that of assuring that they are all justly incarcerated. You see what I'm saying? Uh, the way a document that appears to be the, the font of justice, the, the foundation of justice and freedom, can actually provide justifications uh, for the, what is perhaps the, the, the most dramatic example of structural racism in the 21st century. No, but of course, even with these constitutional amendments, black people were not allowed to vote. As a matter of fact, we needed a, a new movement a mid-20th century civil rights movement in order to guarantee that citizenship, in order to elevate that citizenship from second class to first class, but I mean, first class citizenship? What is that supposed to mean? A citizen should be a citizen. No, there shouldn't be hierarchies of citizenship. And this recalls um, should recall for us the fact that the very democracy we take for granted in this country is a democracy that itself was founded on elitism. Uh, racial elitism, class elitism, gender elitism. Uh, you know, who were the men who were created equal? I mean, at least the Constitution tells us that it was men. <laughs> you know, so we should know that half the population from the very outset was excluded. And we know that it was all white men are created equal, but then it was not all white men are created equal because there were property conditions. Uh, so basically, it was all affluent white men. All property-owning white men are created equal. This is an elitist democracy, which should be considered an oxymoron, right? Because democracy is supposed to be the, the opposite uh, of political systems founded on elitism. Uh, the point that I'm making is that this is what we have. And we've been asking to assimilate into this kind of democracy those flaws, those original flaws cannot be eradicated by integrating those who have been excluded 
into the already flawed democracy. The democracy itself has to change. The democracy itself has to change. And this is what we've not been able to talk about. This is why conversations on race have been so difficult all of these decades. Uh, when, when one uses a feminist methodology, one can say that it's not a question of simply incorporating black people or native people into a racist society or women into a misogynist society or electing a black president or electing a female president but rather of transforming the very society which has produced racism, economic injustices, heteropatriarchal oppression, homophobia, transphobia, global warming, and other environmental disasters. That is our task. And if, if the phrase black movement means anything at all, it is evocative of the ongoing struggle for justice, for freedom. And freedom is not a thing. It's not an object to be achieved. It's not the quality of an individual. If it is anything at all, it is a constant collective yearning for new worlds, for new futures. And who most embodies this collective yearning, if not people who have been enslaved, oppressed, incarcerated. Freedom is the negation of the conditions under which black people all over the diaspora have been compelled to live over the last five centuries. And there is no such thing as the freedom of a single individual. We know that freedom, as it has been conceived under, um, you know, the word I like to use is bourgeois democracies. <laughs> because I think that is, the, that is the, the democracy we were offered in, in this country. Um, so we know that freedom, as it has been conceived on, under bourgeois democracies, has always been a limited freedom, a freedom accorded to racial, class, gender elites, a freedom that acquires its value precisely because of its powers of exclusion by virtue of race, class, gender, sexuality. And at this moment, we are experiencing what you might call the revenge of history. Uh, the strike back of those who do not recognize that making America great, first of all, it would not be again. <laughs> Second of all, it would mean re, it would mean constructing the kind of society that should have been available to people in the aftermath of slavery. 
In many ways, in many ways, we have not made much progress, particularly in the way we think about democracy, uh, than those who did not realize that the only way a significant de democracy would have been created in the aftermath of slavery was to retool the entire society. Um, to create a society with institutions that would have allowed for the incorporation of previously enslaved people. And of course, we can't talk about slavery without also talking about settler colonialism. Uh, slavery and settler colonialism were, were very much intertwined, and the inheritances of slavery and settler colonialism are intertwined today. So some of us are calling for an end to racism, many of us. Some of us are calling for an end to the institutions of policing and punishment as we know them. Some of us are calling for the abolition of institutions of education insofar as they cater primarily to those who are affluent enough to take advantage of education. And in this period, the demands for the abolition of policing as we know it, the abolition of prisons as we know them, no longer seem like the crazy formulations of misguided idealists. Such demands are beginning during this period to make a great deal of sense. And this is within the context of stronger calls to end the Israeli occupation of Palestine. <laughs> Justice for Palestine. Immigrant rights from North America to Southeast Asia to Africa and the Middle East. Immigrant rights are emerging as pivotal issues. Thus, we're also witnessing the limits of limited citizenship and are compelled to raise the question of the meaning of global citizenship. In this context, we revisit the relationship of capitalism and slavery and the intentional underdevelopment of the southern region. This year we are also observing the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Black Panther Party. And as we consider the relations between the Black Panther Party and the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement, it feels like Decades and generations that separate one from the other create a kind of incommensurability that is a consequence of the economic, political, cultural, and technological changes that make this contemporary moment so different in many important respects. But I've been thinking perhaps we should seek connections between the two movements that are revealed not so much in their similarities, uh, because this is what we normally do. We seek uh, to discover similarities, but rather to discover the relationship in, through their radical differences. 
The Black Panther Party emerged as a response to the police occupation of Oakland, California, and black urban communities across the country. It was an absolutely brilliant move on the part of Huey Newton and Bobby Seale to patrol the neighborhood with guns, which were legal then, and law books. In other words, what they were attempting to do was to police the police. And at the same time, this strategy, which admittedly was also inspired by the emergence of guerrilla movements in Cuba, liberation armies in Southern Africa and the Middle East by the successful resistance offered by the National Liberation Front in Vietnam. In retrospect, however, this strategy reflected a failure to recognize, as Audre Lorde put it, that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. In other words, in other words, the, the use of guns, even though primarily as symbols of resistance, conveyed the message that the police could be effectively challenged by relying on explicitly policing strategies. Now, a hashtag that was developed by Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi in the aftermath of the vigilante killing of Trayvon Martin, Black Lives Matter, began to be transformed into a network as a direct response to the rising protests in Ferguson, Missouri, which manifested a collective desire to demand justice for Mike Brown and for all of the black lives sacrificed on the altar of police terror, racist police terror. You're listening to Angela Davis, Beginnings, Movements of Possibility. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling one 800 444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. But in asking us to radically resist the racist violence at the very heart of policing structures and strategies, Black Lives Matter as a movement early on recognized that we would have to do something other than police the police. And so they began to call, for example, for the demilitarization of the police. This became the heart of our efforts to move toward a more critical and more collective mode of justice. Uh, ultimately linked to an approach that calls for the abolition of policing as we know and experience it, demilitarization also contested the ways in which police strategies have been transnationalized within circuits that link small U.S. police departments to Israel which dominates the arena of militarized policing, which is, of course, associated with the occupation of Palestine. 
And so I appreciate the more complicated analysis that is embraced by many BLM activists because it reflects a historical mindedness that is able to build upon, embrace, and radically critique activisms and anti-racist theories of the past. The Black Panther Party attempted, sometimes unsuccessfully, to embrace emergent feminisms and what was then called the gay liberation movement. Black Lives Matter leaders and activists have developed approaches that more productively take up feminist and queer theories and practices. But theories of freedom are always tentative. Any theory or political strategy that pretends to possess a total theory of freedom or one that can be categorically understood has failed to account for the multiplicity of possibilities which can perhaps only be evocatively represented within the realms of art and culture. There is an increasingly popular understanding of the need for an internationalist framework within which the ongoing work of dismantling structures of racism, heteropatriarchy, economic injustices, uh, and this is necessary so that our struggles can become more enduring and more meaningful. We are increasingly recognizing that Palestine occupies a pivotal place precisely because of the similarities between Israel and the US. Their foundational settler colonialism, their ethnic cleansing processes with respect to indigenous people, their systems of segregation, their use of legal systems to enact systematic repression, etc. Black Lives Matter activists and others associated with this very important historical moment of a surging collective consciousness calling for recognition of the persisting structures of racism can play an important role in compelling other areas of social justice activism to take up the cause of Palestine solidarity and specifically the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Alliances on university campuses that bring together black student organizations, students for justice in Palestine and campus chapters of Jewish Voice for Peace are reminding us of the profound need to unite anti-racist efforts with strong challenges to Islamophobia and to anti-Semitism, and with the global resistance to the apartheid policies and practices of the state of Israel. And so theoretically and ideo ideologically, Palestine has helped us to broaden our vision of abolition, which we have characterized in this era as the abolition of imprisonment and policing, but we need to go further. The experience of Palestine pushes us to revisit concepts such as the prison nation, 
for the carceral state in order to seriously understand the quotidian carcerality's of the occupation and the ubiquitous policing, not only by Israeli forces, but also by the Palestinian Authority. This, in turn, has stimulated other research directions on the uses of incarceration and its role. For example, in perpetuating notions of a permanent binarism with respect to gender and in naturalizing segregation based on physical, mental, and intellectual abilities. At a time when popular discourse is rapidly shifting as a direct response to pressures emanating from sustained protest against state violence and from representational practices linked to new technologies of communication, I want to suggest that we need movements that pay as much attention to political education as they pay to the mobilizations that have succeeded in placing police violence and mass incarceration on the national political agenda. What this means, I think, is that we try to forge an analysis of the current conjuncture that draws important lessons from the relatively recent campaigns that have pushed our collective consciousness beyond previous limits. We need movements that are prepared to resist the inevitable seductions of assimilation. The Occupy campaign enabled us to develop an anti-capitalist vocabulary. Uh, the 99% versus the 1% is the concept that has entered into popular parlance. The question is not only how to preserve this vocabulary, but how to build on it and complicate it with, for example, the idea of racial capitalism, which cannot be so neatly expressed in quantitative terms that assume the uh, homogeneity that always undergirds racism, assimilationalist strategies that leave intact the circumstances and structures that have previously required exclusion and marginalization have always been offered as the more reasonable alternative to abolition, which of course involves resistance and dismantling, but not only resistance and dismantling, but also radical reimaginings and radical reconstructions. And so I use that uh, very intentionally uh, in relation to the situation in the aftermath of slavery and the radical reconstruction that did not last um, nearly as long as it should have. So what does all of this have to do with um, the predicament we find ourselves in at this particular moment. Well, I think that many of us have learned that the arena of electoral politics tends to prevent expression of radical political perspectives. But this does not mean that we don't participate. And this does not mean that we urge our radical communities not to vote. We have devoted too much energy to the struggle for voting rights 
not to go to the polls. I think, and I have said this on several occasions, that we have to move towards the building of a new political party, a party inspired in the broadest sense by the black radical tradition, a party led by and addressing the interests of black people, native people, Latinos, Asian Americans, Muslim Americans, working class people of all racial backgrounds, a party that is anti-capitalist, a party that supports immigrant rights, LGBTQI rights, environmental justice, food sovereignty against the brutality inflicted on animals in our industrialized food production. And I wish we had this party today, but we don't. I mean, I think this, this party has to be, labor has to play a major role. Uh, and I, I say this with uh, a certain element of trepidation because there was a time when we said that labor has to be the foundation of a new political party, but at that time, over 30% of the labor force was unionized. So it meant something entirely different from what it means today. Uh, but I, I still do not want to give up on labor. We need movements that acknowledge the intersectionality of current issues, movements that are sufficiently open to allow for the future development of ideas and issues and movements, even for those that we cannot even begin to imagine today. Thank you very much. Well, one of the things that has become apparent um, to me and many others is that uh, we need a 21st century internationalism. Uh, and I mentioned immigration as an issue that cuts across so many different geopolitical spaces. Uh, I've been thinking about the possibility of organizing some kind of global movement around the issue of immigrant rights. Uh, I suppose I would also say that I'm really interested in analyses that go beyond the limitations of the nation state. We tend to think about the nation as the human community that best expresses our need to be together with other human beings. But the nation state is a historical invention. Why does it have to be that way? Why do we always have to think about citizenship within the confines of the nation. So I, I would also suggest that we think about movements that allow us to move beyond uh, those, uh, the assumption that our projects have to be contained uh, within the nation. I spent some time, not a lot of time, um, in South Africa during the month of 
September. I found it, on the one hand, very depressing because, at, you know, those of us whose own histories are so uh, attached to the anti-apartheid movement, uh, to see where the African National Congress is today is it's very difficult. And I, I, I think about something that um, Ghassan Haj calls uh, the need to think about alter politics uh, and not just anti-politics. Because we often focus only on bringing down what it is we are challenging. But we don't necessarily try to imagine you know, what life will be like after victory. And I think that uh, many of the people in the ANC probably never imagined that they would be victorious. Because yeah. if so, how would someone like Cyril Ramaphosa, one of the most militant leaders uh, of the struggle, uh, end up becoming the wealthiest you know, man in South Africa, a billionaire? I was so impressed by the younger generation. Um, you know, I had conversations with many of my old friends, people that I met in the, in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, you know, it was, there, were, there were nostalgic moments, remembering what it used to be like. Uh, and also uh, uh, listening to them talk about the difficulties, the fact that the ANC has lost uh, election after election after election. And, but then on the other hand, there are these young people who, who were born after the downfall of apartheid and who want to see a new world, who have ideas about the future, who move from roads must fall to fees must fall to free education. And uh, I don't think that... Uh, social justice movements can survive uh, without art, you know, poetry, music. Um, and not as an addendum, but art has to constitute the very heart of our struggles for freedom. The very heart. Music allows us to feel in ways that we would not know how to feel. And an anti-capitalist vocabulary, an anti-capitalist popular vocabulary is so important. Uh, we began to develop that with Occupy, uh, what it means to embrace uh, a long view of history and not to assume that change has to happen overnight. And I think our problem in this country is that we're always focused on outcomes. I mean, this is the damage that the, um, the nonprofits have done because they want to know immediately what is your project, how, you know, what, what are you going to do, and what are you going to achieve, and how can you evaluate that? Well, some of these things are not achievable right now. We have to think about 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 500 years. And this is, again, what I really appreciate about um, indigenous cosmologies, the ability 
to think about life in those vast historical terms so that we recognize that what we do at this moment will have consequences for people five generations from now. And so I think that our anti-capitalist projects have to have that long view of future history at their core. I I visited Colombia not that long ago, um, and I visited uh, a site that was subject to um, eviction because uh, African, Afro-descended Colombians uh, who were being forced to leave because of the gold mining the big corporations wanted to do. Uh, The people who lived there had been living there for over 400 years. 400 years. So they were, you know, when they sang their songs and performed their dances, they were communicating with their ancestors centuries before them. You know, I think that our movement lacks a kind of spirituality uh, that has... uh, It's the damage that capitalism has done because capitalism is about profits and immediacy and and what you can achieve immediately. But if we learn how to experience some kind of spiritual connection with those who are our ancestors and those who are coming after us, uh, then, you know, maybe it won't feel so bad to think about, well, this is going to happen after I'm gone. Uh, Because most people think, well, I'll be dead then, so what difference does it make? Because we measure the success with our own lifetime. And that makes no sense at all, because we are just tiny, tiny specks in a huge, huge history. But what concerns me these days is how to develop collective practices. Because we tend to think about self-care as individualistic. And I know, you know, I started practicing yoga when I was in jail. I often say now that I am so thankful for the time that I spent behind bars. In a sense, I treat it now as a gift because I started a yoga practice. I mean, I haven't always been totally consistent, but it's a practice that I've had with me for the vast majority of of my life. But it's primarily been an individual practice. And so I'm interested in how we can develop these kinds of practices that connect us, that bring us together, that allow us to exit our individual selves. Because capitalism insists on the sanctity of individualism. And I'm not opposed to individuality. I think individuality is very important. But individualism militates against individuality. I think individuality expresses itself best in a, a kind of dialectical way in relation to community. So how can we create practices of, of self-care that bring us together? And I think this is... Uh, I'm interested in mindfulness and social justice. 
and a mindfulness that brings us together as community and allows us to contribute our whole selves. I think that uh, generationality is so important and creating relations across generations. Uh, but we can't assume that the older people have the answer. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I mean, this is one of the unfortunate factors of growing old. Because I think so many people attempt to address the anxiety of age by assuming that they incorporate all of the, the knowledge that is to be had, and therefore they speak down to younger people. So, I mean, and this is something that uh, I've really been conscious of. As I grew older, you know, when I turned 30, because it used to be that people said no one over 30 could be trusted, right? <laughs> but, but I've been aware of the process uh, and what it means to have been a part of a movement that inspires ideas that animate younger people uh, in a sense, they stand on our shoulders. Uh, as we grow older, we should become even more curious than we were when we were younger. And we should also recognize that young people have ideas that we are incapable <laughs> of having. And one of the reasons it's because, in a sense, they get to benefit from everything we know. But they not only get to benefit from everything we know, they get to benefit from what they are able to know based on our generational knowledge. So young people should theoretically know a lot more. As a professor, I'm so excited when, when I see a student that I think has surpassed you know, what it, what it was that I taught that student, because that is the way it's supposed to be. That's the way, that is, that is what history is supposed to be about. And so I think if one approaches young people uh, with a posture of attempting to learn, you know, what it is they know, uh, and not simply with the idea that I'm going to tell you the way we did it and you have to do it the way... We did it even though we weren't really successful. Right? <laughs> they should be able to make new mistakes. They shouldn't have to make the old mistakes. They should be able to make new mistakes. Well, I mean, I'm excited that we have somewhere to go. We have a long way to go. And I'm excited. Let me say, we're just starting to deal with racism just beginning. We're just beginning to address issues of gender. We're just beginning to address a whole range of issues. So I can say that I'm excited because this seems like a really powerful beginning. That was Angela Davis on Beginnings, Movements of Possibility. She spoke in Santa Fe, Angela Davis, one of the iconic figures of this era, is an internationally renowned writer, scholar, and lecturer. She's Professor Emerita at the University of California at Santa Cruz. 
an eloquent and charismatic speaker. She is much in demand all over the world. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media education organization, Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media. We have a series of Angela Davis programs as well. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Angela Davis on Beginnings, Movements of Possibility, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to the Lennon Foundation. The Kronos Quartet performs our theme music from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.